1: And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey
0: everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work. If I'm exercising, any free time working out in the yard, I can get caught up in all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, I'm so pleased to have on my show Bob Lutz. I'm real excited. He's one of the most experienced and high profile audio executives in the world. He's been in the business for almost 50 years, and he left an indelible mark on all three of the big U.S. automakers, most recently GM, where he reinvigorated its previously undistinguished vehicle lineup. His credentials are pretty amazing. A fighter pilot in the U.S. Marine Corps, an MBA from Berkeley, former executive VP of BMW, former, former VP of Ford, former president of Chrysler, retired vice chairman of global product development with GM, member of the Lotus Advisory Council, the British sports car manufacturer. He's the ultimate car guy. He's an author, too. He's written three great books, Car Guys vs. Bean Counters, Guts, which is Eight Laws of Business, and his latest and greatest one, Icons and Idiots, Straight Talk on Leadership. Bob, what a thrill to have you on the show. Welcome to The Dose of Leadership.
2: Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, guys, you know what? I'm excited to learn. Recently, we were talking about uh, the Marine Corps, and when I started reading about you, I didn't realize that you were a fighter pilot, and, of course, you and I were talking right before the recording I didn't realize how much the Marine Corps taught me about business till I got out of the Marine Corps and into the business world. Did you have the same uh, experience?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the, Marine Corps, uh, the Marine Corps teaches you, first of all, uh, to obey, but not to obey blindly unless that's absolutely essential. Uh, the Marine Corps encourages constructive discussion and dissent, uh, the Marine Corps delegates, and uh, it's hard for people to, under- to to believe, but it's really not the officers who run the, run the Marine Corps. Right. The actual running of the Corps is accomplished by the MCOs. The officers supervise, select, critique, uh, maintain policy, and so forth and so on. But the actual running of the Marine Corps, it's not micromanaged by the officers at all.
0: You know a lot of uh, I, I, I would say on a weekly basis I'm always I don't know if defending is the right word, but I'm always educating people about the Marine Corps and the leadership philosophy. It's so central to my philosophy today that it really was an organization where the, the only organization or the best organization I've been in where creativity and dissent like you, you talked about there and the, the and the kind of the mantra is it's not their right to challenge it's your obligation in fact, my biggest right.
2: one, absolutely. My biggest, button. unless 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 your senior officer or NCO says the discussion's over. Here's what we're going to do. Right. Then everybody shuts up and turns to.
0: Yep. So tell me, gosh, there's so many things. I was reading your book, Icons and Idiots, and what, uh, and it reminded me a lot about the Marine Corps because, it, and I think back to all those colorful characters. And your book is really a, a, a kind of a chronological history of some of the colorful characters you've you've come across in your past and it's such a refreshing book because and it made me even think about some of my um maybe the leaders i've come into contact with in the past that i thought were bad but i love i love how you take some of the weird quirky characters and we've all had them but you found some good in them at the end and i love that that kind of transition you had in that book and it's made well yeah
2: because i think um leaders probably especially in industry but also in politics um, tend to be somewhat skewed individuals uh, by that i mean if you look at the total set of their characteristics it's not you know six and a half six and a half six point eight seven point oh seven point two on a ten point scale it's more like nine and ten on some characteristics and three and four on some of their personal traits the personal traits are sometimes hard to live with. It makes them hard to work for, uh, sometimes very unpleasant. They can be very unfair, which is uh, which is hard on subordinates. But as long as they have a, a central customer-oriented and shareholder-oriented focus, you can forgive all the nits and gnats and the weird behavior and the idiosyncrasies and so forth and say, well, I didn't enjoy working for them, but I did learn a lot. It was like going through boot camp all over again, but you can't argue with you can't argue with the, what the guy accomplished.
0: Yeah, that's true, and that's one thing that I have to learn about looking back at some of those colorful characters, which I think is great in this book. I mean, you worked with some great icons. You know, Lee Iacocca is probably yeah. the one everybody will remember the most. Tell me a little bit about what it was like working for him. Share some of those stories that you with with my listeners here.
2: Well, Iacocca was at times when he was off his game, or tired, or feeling overly challenged in a large meeting, uh, could really do some things that didn't make a whole lot of sense, and said things that didn't make a lot of sense. And and you'd think, how did this guy ever rise to these heights? (laughs) But other times, when the chips were down, he'd listen to various views in the meeting, and then smoking a cigar. This is back when cigar smoking was tolerated in conference rooms. And all of a sudden, he'd put his cigar down and say, all right, everybody, listen up. Uh, Here's what I think we ought to do. One, and then he'd go two, and then three, and then four. And he'd lay out this perfect, flawless plan. He had absorbed all the inputs. He'd process them. And then he outlined uh, sometimes... A very bold strategy, for instance, one that isn't in the book. When we had uh, the so-called Chrysler odometer scandal, it was uh, right. uh, you know much ado about nothing. But some of the cars we delivered had 150 miles on them because they've been tested randomly tested by us prior to delivery. And the argument was we were giving people used cars, which which of course was silly, um, but it turned it turned into a huge thing in the media. And everybody was saying, well, why don't we just wait till it blows over, and or we'll stop doing it. And Iacocca said, no, wait, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take full-page full, full page newspaper ads, all print. We're going to have a bold headline saying the truth about Chrysler odometers. We're going to apologize to the public. We're going to say that anybody who isn't pleased with their car can turn it back in for a new one, and so forth and so on. I mean, it was this... Bold, reach out. It was like vertical envelopment, you know. Right. Uh, don't, don't, don't fight the enemy on his terms. Go way beyond them, land behind their lines, and then roll them up from behind. And it didn't cost very much money. That probably a hundred people turned their cars in, but it just took the wind out of the sails of the whole thing. And it was such a bold strategy that you know, nobody but Iacoca would have thought of that.
0: You know, what I love about what you point out, and even studying some of the greats, like like you said, some of these great iconic leaders, you know, behind all that boldness and that, that drive and that kind of brilliance, there was an underlying insecurity Mother, And I think about Steve Jobs, too, and reading his biography, and you know, he was driven by a lot of insecurities, too. But that boldness was needed at the right place in the right time, right?
2: Yeah. Well, Iacocca was a strange combination of uh, bluster, bravado, uh, a lot of he He wanted to sound as much like a drill instructor as possible uh his conversation was just laced with four letter words <laughs> um and uh, he sounded like the ultimate tough guy, <clears throat> but he was also very vulnerable at times insecure in social in social situations, especially around um people who had had a better or wealthier upbringing than he had had. He couldn't remember, he couldn't forget that he was the son of a hot dog vendor, uh, that he was Italian. You know, he'd taken, back in Allentown, Pennsylvania, he'd taken a lot of ribbing in school about it being Italian and so forth. Uh, Later on, he had beautiful tailor-made suits, but when he was at Ford, he often dressed like the quintessential used car salesman with uh, very loud plaid suits and wide ties with bad patterns on them and so forth and uh, he, he, he had this slight social inferiority complex so when he was around people he didn't know uh, like a, a big uh, you know a, a big uh, society event or a, a black tie ball for charity or something uh, and he didn't know a lot of the people, He always had his entourage around him, and he he just tended to have his entourage clustered around him, and he would basically talk to his entourage until uh, members of the entourage brought important people to him and introduced them, and then he was okay. But he was often slightly ill at ease in situations like that, and it it also, um, for instance, one time... I think it was the Detroit News did a big article on me. with a, It was almost a full-page article with a a picture of me, and it said, uh, you know, the future leader in the automobile industry. This was about 35 years ago. And um, rather than saying, boy, that was a great article, you know, that's good PR for for it, don't let it go to your head or something, he got the PR guys in and said, what is this? How come Lutz is getting all this ink? Why? Why? Why wasn't I in that article? And <laughs> when are you going to give me a big article like that? Wow!
0: Well, see, that's 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 insecure behavior. Right. That's amazing. It's just an amazing, fascinating study of character. It's also amazing to me too. And and Iacocca was an example in, the, in your chapter on the Harold uh, Red Polling. Is that, am I saying his last name right? Polling or is it Pauling? Polling? Yeah, Polling. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. How? Yeah, I just I. I mean, my gut was in knots. Listen, you know because I, I could see, I could just feel the tension in those situations that you are in, and there were so many numerous ones you had, but in the end, you ended up being such great, you had great respect for each other at the end. Even yeah, like,
2: once, once I left Ford, and I went to Chrysler, and we introduced the successful LH cars, and and uh, he, he told me, he says, how was the cost control on these? I said, Red, you'd be very pleased with what I did. I I exercised extreme cost control. They all came in on target. <clears throat> we can sell the base Dodge for sixteen thousand dollars and still make a lot of money on it. And he said, Boy am I proud of you, you know, that that is just terrific. And but from from the time I left Ford we really became good friends and uh occasional, even after he was retired, he'd occasionally you know, we'd we'd have dinner or lunch together and it was a uh, An extremely supportive relationship. So, but I'll tell you, working for him, uh, there were days when uh, people had to talk me out of quitting. I just said,
0: I'm not going to work for that guy,
2: but that's not the term I used.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I used the vernacular for uh, intestinal outlet,
2: (laughs) Uh, and, and they'd have to talk me down and say, look, he's that, that's just red, you have to get used to it he he doesn't mean half of what he says he really likes you and so forth and so on but I'll tell you it was just awful and I just got some letters from former Ford guys who had also worked for him and they had sent me some anecdotes which uh, I couldn't have put in the book because they didn't happen they didn't happen to me personally but they said boy you were kind you were really kind oh, to man. the guy," uh, because they said he was just I mean Almost impossible guy. And his reaction to whenever there was, you know, we were below budget or something, or the month came in, this was in Fort of Europe, when the month came in below budget and we didn't sell as much as we thought we were going to sell, he'd call an all day Saturday meeting at his house and we'd all sit around and talk about profit improvement and so forth and just waste everybody's time. But it was his way of. Making us suffer for the fact that we hadn't produced the result, mm-hmm.
0: and it was—I tell it,
2: you—it was—it was—it was just incredible. Yeah, it, I, you, I always thought you can't make this
0: stuff up. I know. I can't. I read that of all the chapters, that one just had me totally. Again, my stomach is in knots because I'm just—I've been around guys like that, and this guy was—but nothing at that degree. And I just—I don't know how you did it. And I was like, oh my god. Yeah. And I was reading this chapter, and what really was so great because I was so engrossed with. With your stories and feeling it, and then just the complete surprise at the end—how you, you—you know, you actually learn something from him, despite all oh, his yeah. his his kind of um, what oh, we. Yeah, would...
2: I mean, uh, I, I cite the anecdote about the, the second generation Fiesta, mm-hmm. where we calculated that uh, in order to make the Fiesta pay, because it's a very small car with low margins, uh, we couldn't spend more than four hundred four hundred million and change. And, the, the you know, the product planners came in with the program, and it was over a billion. And uh, I I was president at the time, and I rejected it and told them to come back later. They came back later and said, well, we scrubbed the program. We've got it to 800 million. And I said, uh, meeting's over. Come back when you're at 420. And they thought, yeah, this guy loves is getting to be as bad as polling. He doesn't <laughs> listen to the reason anymore. And finally, they came in and said, okay, we've got it. Uh, we're at 420 uh, we had to give up some stuff, but nothing major, but we really need about another $70 million for a new front suspension, we cannot live with the front suspension on the car, and I said, well, I'll take that under advisement, and I went to see Red, and I said, look, we're at 420 plus 70 for a new front suspension, and he said, tell them they can't have it, and I <laughs> said, well, Red, that's not reason, he said, tell them they can't have it. Oh, okay. I went back and told them they can't have it. And they sunk for about three weeks and said, well, the car's going to be lousy. We're going to get the same criticisms on the front suspension that we had on the prior car and so forth. And lo and behold, after a month, they came in and said, we found a way to put a new front suspension in without tearing up the front end of the car, and we can get it for 7 to $10 billion. And at that point, I just said yes. And then I went to tell Red, and I said, look, Red, it's 4.20. I, I allowed him another 10 because they figured out a way to fix the front suspension. And he said, well, you shouldn't have given in. They, they might have done it for nothing. <laughs> I said, well, look, the program's 4.30 now. You know, we can't, we can't keep track that close. He said, well, okay. And I applied that, that lesson successfully later at GM on the current Equinox, um, current Chevy Equinox. Where it wanted to be 275 million more because they wanted to use the same architecture as on the Cadillac SRX, which is a much more expensive vehicle architecture. And I said no. And they said, well, we we get, we, we won't be able to put the bigger bigger wheels on. I said, tough luck, live with the smaller wheels. I said, well, Bob, that's not reasonable. Look, we'll sell so much. I said, we are not spending another 275 to put a Cadillac architecture under a Chevrolet. And sure enough, a month later, they found a way mm-hmm. to package larger wheels and brakes. Uh, so that was a valuable lesson. If it, you know, if it, if it doesn't pass the smell test financially, you just say no,
0: yeah.
2: and that's what then starts putting people's creativity to work.
0: You know, it's an interesting balance because I could see myself in that situation. You know, because you know, I'm always. A big advocate of, you know, they're the experts, right? They're the engineers, but you got to have that delicate walk that, walk that tightrope of continue to push yep. them. Always ask why, always ask why, push and push and push. How do you know? How do you gauge that? How do you know it? Because at some point you even put. Well, it in look,
2: the if, if they had come back after two months and showed me a clay model with the little wheels and the wheels inboard and, and said, look, Pop, we've studied everything we know how to study, we really cannot. Make this vehicle look right without going to the larger architecture. At that point, I might have relanded. Yeah. But and and there have been cases where I relatted and finally said, "Well, okay." But um, I would say, you know, four times out of five, uh, by by pushing and initially resisting the high number, uh, you get a number that's much easier to live with and that's much more much more inclined to get you high profitability.
0: You know, I'm curious, because of, you've been in the auto industry for so long, and the whole auto industry is an idea game, and where do you come up, Where does, and, and as it pertains to leadership, where do all the great ideas come from in an organization that large?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. People think it's the product planners, but the product planners are really the ultimate bean counters. In fact, a lot of them come out of finance. And they're very good at uh, sifting through market data and seeing uh, which competitor vehicles are selling the best and why they're selling the best and so forth. And then they will come up with a careful, skillful, formulaic blend of a vehicle that's much like what the competitors are selling today, only hopefully slightly better. But there's there's no exogenous new idea in there, and I found that uh, I, I got much better results, and then they would, the product planners would tend to over-define the vehicle, and when it was fully defined dimensionally, they'd give it to the designers and say, here, put a wrapper on this. Well, that doesn't work, um, and I found that I got much better results by telling the designers who are the creative force in a company, say, hey, do a... Do me something really slick, you know, low, wide, very fast windshield, something that looks like it's going 100 miles an hour when it's standing still. And, they, and much encouraged, they would do a proposal, which probably didn't have enough, quite enough passenger space, and the hood was a little too low, and the trunk was a little too small, but everybody would fall in love with it, and then you would take that initial dramatic design, and then you tweak it—you uh, you know, move the sides out a little, move the roof up an inch, and so forth. Change some of the change some of the dimensions. Try not to lose the proportion, but you're much better off starting with the big idea, and then making that big idea feasible, rather than starting with a bunch of numerical requirements yeah. and then and then trying to, uh, as I as I used to say get an ugly package and then tell the designers to put a pretty wrapper on it which which they can't do. Uh, So a lot of the ideas frankly come from the relatively few people in any large automobile organization who are genuine product fans who who genuinely love cars. So I, I will willingly admit that a lot of the ideas for new cars like the Pontiac Solstice and the Saturn Sky and the Saturn Aura and so forth uh, those came from me hmm. and uh, you've got to have somebody with creative flair because the automobile business isn't about transportation any more than the watch business is about telling time right it, it's, it, it's, it's art and entertainment is what the automobile business is today and if you obviously functionally you know it's got to meet all the government regulations et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. that's a given and of course the quality has to be there But beyond that, it's really, it's all about aesthetics and flair and triggering lust in the buyers as opposed to, well, it's okay, it's functional, I guess it'll do the job. Well, nowadays, everything is functional, everything does the job, everything has high quality ratings, everybody gets good fuel economy. You can't win on that stuff anymore. Right. Um, Which is why Toyota was. seriously losing speed for a while because their one claim to fame which was ultimate reliability and quality was damaged by their big recall issue and by the fact that they sort of dropped into the middle of the field when it comes to reliability and everybody else started getting the same reliability and the same longevity but with better style and better driving dynamics and that's why the Toyotas you see coming out now, I mean, Akio Toyoda, the current chairman, has understood this, and Toyota is now going all out for dramatic styling, as witnessed by the new Toyota Avalon, which is a you know a truly, dramatically beautiful car. Or take Hyundai, Hyundai and Kia.
0: Oh, yeah, great example,
2: yep. Yeah, they were kind of, okay, they're Korean, they're low-priced, they're fairly reliable, but gee, what ugly little cars. And they got uh, a British, a famous British designer, whose name escapes me right now, for Hyundai, and they got Peter Schreier, who was a former chief designer for Audi, for Kia, and they have been just, Hyundai-Kia has been turning out some of the most beautiful vehicles in every category yeah, in the world. Yeah, that's true. And, and their sales are rising dramatically,
0: dramatically. Yeah. Oh, it's just fascinating. And you saw and the one thing that really struck me when I read Icons and Idiots, and it really struck me the, you know, the length of span, th- almost forty years in the business, and how much things have changed. You know, from the political correctness to everything else. You've seen a lot yeah. of leadership styles. You've seen a lot of stuff that works and what doesn't. What char- characteristics do you think are essential for anybody, no matter what decade it is, that are, are essential for a leader to have?
2: Well, I would say uh, obviously the first one is a high level of integrity. I mean, uh, a leader who cuts corners or tells one person one thing and another person another, uh, who is in any way intellectually dishonest, uh, is not going to be successful over time. So that's a given. Uh, beyond the absolute integrity, I think is a, a high level of self-confidence, um, a, a, a sense of creativity, um, a need for driving change as opposed to administering the status quo, which Mm -hmm. is many so-called leaders are not really leaders. They're just administrators. They just sit behind their desk and shuffle papers and chair meetings. Uh, But the real leader is constantly pushing for change, new solutions, uh, new products, new ways of doing things. And he he or she has to possess... The communication skills both written and most importantly verbal to get that vision and to get that idea uh, accepted by the subordinates and get them as excited about it as he or she is then the organization really moves so I put um, visionary leadership and the ability to communicate the leaders communicate the ideas uh, I, I have to rank that near the
0: top. Yeah, that's good. I like that. What do you think some of the biggest challenges facing today's leaders are? Anything different, or is it, is it pretty much all the same as it was 30, 40 years ago?
2: Well, I think that the challenges obviously are, are physically different, but, you know, a challenge is a challenge. Um, I think the, the the difference today is it's way too easy for leaders to be sidetracked into pursuing a bunch of what I call subsidiary initiatives, you know, like um, diversity programs. Well, that's a good thing. Uh, Or um, employee surveys to gauge the degree of happiness of employees, Mm -hmm. uh, how they rank working for the company versus how people in other companies rank working for their company. That's all interesting stuff. I'm not saying it's not important, but it becomes very easy for a senior leader to allocate large blocks of time to stuff like that. Yeah. And it, it's, it's all nice to have stuff, but it is not driving the organization forward. So um, a, a leader now and then has to have a decent set of priorities. And the number one priority is how good is my product how good is my service? What can I do? To, what can I do to beat the competition? Uh, that has to be the primary focus. And, and the problem with a lot of highly educated Harvard B school types, and uh, you know my view on formal business education. Only no, as a disclaimer, I can only say I am one myself. Mm-hmm. I, I've got an MBA with a three point eight three grade point average. So. I am one, and I I do speak the language, and I do know, know the techniques. But a lot of people confuse application of the techniques they learned at business school with leadership, yeah. and that's not leadership. Yeah, that's just that's just the toolkit. Yeah. and I don't think I don't think many business schools actually teach leadership.
0: No, they don't, and I and. Um... I don't know. You even said it in your book, and we we're talking in the recording. And I can go back to that Marine Corps. I think that, and and again, I always on a weekly basis, basis talking to somebody about this because they don't understand. But I I have not found an organization where the, the whole idea of ethics, of courage, of commitment, and pride, all wrapped up in one package, um, that's the stuff I think people should should grasp or glean from the Marine Corps. That you know, yeah, pushing absolutely pushing the leadership down to the absolute lowest level possible putting decision making yep. down to the absolute lowest level there's a lot to be gained from that and yep. um i don't know i wish i wish more people would understand that
2: well you know we we used to have the tradition of the citizen soldier where um sons of middle class families would go in the military hopefully the marine corps in many cases They'd serve five years or six years on active duty, and come out and join civilian life and bring that uh, that military leadership ethic with them into uh, into their civilian job. And with the professional military, sadly, I think we've lost that. We have lost uh, this infusion of uh, the really, really good military and predominantly Marine Corps. And that's why there's so many CEOs and presidents in the United States. Of course, that, that era is fast fading. But uh, up until 15 or 20 years ago, we had a disproportionate percentage of CEOs and presidents of companies who were former Marine officers. Yeah. And you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think we're in the process of losing that. I think I was probably uh, Fred Smith, the of, of founder of, uh, of FedEx. FedEx. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, a famous former Marine aviator uh, is uh, he's not, he's not going to retire because he owns the company. But um, uh, I think he's probably the last the last man standing with a Marine Corps background or any military
0: background. Yeah, you know, you grew up, you you came through at a great age. I mean, I'm a of, of the era that you came through. I think it was um, such a great time to be. Number one in the Marine Corps in the late '50s. Uh, to, to kind of get your education and, and go through corporate America from the 60s and beyond. You saw a lot of great things. I, I mean, it just so much to learn from what, what you have to offer. What what do you think, um, if someone was going to a leadership position for the first time, what advice would you give them?
2: Into a leadership position the first time? Yeah, they're
0: just getting started in a leadership role now. What, what do you, no, what I, I,
2: would, I would certainly, I would certainly uh, grab a bunch of books. Um, I'd go. I'd go to a Marine Corps website, and I'd, I'd I'd get whatever I could read on Marine Corps principles of leadership. I I would have them read Chesty Puller's book. Uh, you know, uh, I'd have them read Breakout um, of the the uh, the uh, fight to uh, free the m- most of the First Marine Division from the Inchon or from yeah uh. yeah I guess Inchon Reservoir uh And I think reading about how great leaders behave under stress uh is is about as good as uh, is is worth and, and it's it's sad that not more not more business schools uh have that in their curriculum yeah uh, but that's, that's why I would suggest reading uh, uh getting as much information as possible on how the Marine Corps trains its leaders, and there's a, there's a lot of
0: publications available. Well, great advice, and again, I know it sounds like a commercial for the Marine Corps, but people listening to this podcast know how fundamental it was to my thought philosophy well, and still to this day.
2: I, the Marine Corps, it's a Marine Corps commercial, but I think it's universally that the excellence and the, 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 the proud tradition of the of the Marine Corps is pretty much universally recognized around the world, so... Uh, when we praise the Marine Corps, it doesn't exactly fall on disbelief ears. That's true.
0: That's so true. Well, guys, Bob, it's so good. I'm so glad you came on the show. Stay on the line when I stop the recording. We'll I'll talk some couple of logistic things here. But but what as we close this out is where's where can people find you? What's a good place so people can find you and your books?
2: Well, um, Amazon has it. Obviously, I also have my own website, uh, and the book can be is available there. It's called. My website is called Bob Lutz says, spelled S-E-Z dot com. So they can get information there. They can also see, you know, a little a history of my a pictorial history of my career and so forth. So that's that's probably an
0: interesting website to go look at. Yep, and I'll have a link to it on uh, DosaLeadership dot com slash Bob Lutz when I post the interview. And all these links to all these great resources will be there, Bob. Again, stay on the line here once I stop the recording, but thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a true pleasure. You're welcome, Richard. I enjoyed it. Yep. Talk to you soon. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership
1: community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook. A guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.